Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, well, I guess it's time for us to get started. I don't know, you can take it as either a good sign or a bad sign. If I was a betting man, we're going to get done early, but we'll go ahead and get started anyway instead of waning. I can never tell how long a lesson's going to take. I've had lessons with 20 pages of notes, and we'd get done early, and I've had lessons with four pages of notes, and we ran out of time. So we'll see what happens today. So this quarter, the good news is Keith is teaching, except for today, and we're talking about a biblical worldview. And this is a topic that Keith has taught several times, and he's far better prepared than I to teach. But he had two Sundays this quarter when he was going to be away preaching. He's in, I think, Stevenson. Is that where he is? He's in Stevenson today, preaching. And so he asked me to fill in. And... He sent out the schedule, and he has this awesome schedule with all this material he's put together. The problem is it had two holes in it, and my name was next to the holes. And so I was thinking about, well, what should we talk about from a biblical worldview? And next week is actually when Keith is going to go over a lot of the foundational verses to cover why we should have a biblical worldview, why that's important. So I'll admit I'm putting the cart a little bit in front of the horse today because I want to jump into one of the more specific topics And the topic I decided to discuss uh, was inspired by Brother Eads, because two weeks ago I filled in for him uh, to conclude a series of lessons he had done, Um, and his last, next to last slide in that lesson had a couple of points related to a topic that I personally just enjoy uh, studying and thinking about, and um, it went like this. He pointed out that in Genesis 2.15... God makes it clear that he intended for man to work in the garden. So let's look at 2.15. Let's start there. Genesis 2.15. Now, the New King James Version reads, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The King James Version translates it a little differently. And it reads, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. If you look at that first part, whether it's to tend or to dress, either way, the Hebrew word there that's translated is found almost 300 times in the Bible. It's most often translated, serve. I mean, 227 of those times. And after that, you get do, till, servant, and work. When you get to that to keep it, well, that's nearly 500 times you find that Hebrew word used. And it's exactly what you would think, to keep, observe, heed, or keeper. So clearly, there was an intent here that man was put in the garden from the outset with the idea to tend and to keep it. I don't know about you, James, but that's work. 
I mean, I think when we think of the garden, I know I do, a lot of times we think of it just being this idyllic life. It's like being on vacation all the time. And in many ways it was. There were many things that were absolutely missing from the garden. Yet, God made man, and when he said, where am I going to put this? He put it in the garden to tend and to keep it. We were created in his image, and God certainly works. The other part of Brother Eve's slide was he pointed out that in the heavenly garden, in Revelation 22, verse 3, let's just read it. Let's read, 20, let's read 3 and um, we'll read 4 as well. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. So here we see that in heaven, they were still serving. From garden to garden. And so, thinking about that, I remember that jumped out at me. I said, wow, I'd never really made that connection before. I'd never thought about that, and I was trying to think about what I was going to speak about today. And the more I started thinking about this idea of work... I thought, well, you know, that's really kind of interesting because we live in a a society today that seems to be doing more and more everything they can to vilify the idea of work. I mean, think about it. It's it's a growing thing that, well, if you have to work, well, somebody's taking advantage of you. Well, that person got rich off somebody else's labor. It's always somebody taking advantage of somebody else. It's never what you actually get or what the person receives or the benefit the person who's doing the work receives as well. There's this, um, what do they call it, victim mentality of, well, if you're working, well, then you're a victim. Someone's taking advantage of you. By the way, make no bones about it, that grows straight out of atheistic communism and socialist ideas. I also then thought back earlier this spring, I was listening to a podcast, and I couldn't find it. I went and I tried to look. I think it was on... Uh, Mike Rose podcast, the guy that does uh, the Dirty Jobs TV show. And he was interviewing a guy, and I can't remember if it was a book or an article he had written, but it was really interesting because it was talking about the labor shortage in the United States, right? Um, And what was interesting was that there were, you know, the labor numbers and the unemployment rate in the United States right now is about 3%. In North Alabama, it's like 1.6%. The interesting part is Those labor rates are calculated based off people who want to work. And there's this weird segment in the population that has grown, and depending on where you look, it's pushing nearly 6 million people now of people who have chosen to work, who are unemployed and are actively not seeking nor desire to work. And I hate to say it, but far too many of these people are grown men living truly like the joke in their parents' basements. 6 million people. That's a lot. So I thought it would be useful for us to take a look at work. Now, work is a word that shows up in the Bible a lot. And a lot of the ways you see it used is it'll be um, the work of God or our work for God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we think of as your work, what you do during the week, how you make a living and provide for yourself. 
And since there are so many verses, which ones do you pick, Glenn? Right? And so I thought, well, let's pick some of the ones we don't necessarily look at as much. And I need something that fits in a classroom length of time frame, right? Because there's so many of these. So I thought, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to go to that really smart dude from the Old Testament. And so let's go look at Proverbs. And I want us to look at a bunch of different verses from Proverbs, to start with at least. And let's look at what we read there about work. So let's start with Proverbs 11 and verse 18. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. I'm going to be honest, I picked Proverbs. I like quotes, I like things that are easy, I, like, I want wisdom in little bite-sized chunks that I can just pick up and carry with me. So, <laughs> The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Alright, so here's my question, what is deceptive work? It's not a, it's not a way we normally phrase things, so... We should probably figure out, make sure we know what's actually being said here. What is deceptive work? This is a class, not, what did he call it? This isn't the second sermon. This is in a whole section of Proverbs that are talking largely about the follies of evil. And if you go look up the Hebrew word here, deceptive work means exactly what you would think. Lie, deception, disappointment, or falsehood. So today, what would we consider deceptive work? Yep. Criminal conduct, that's a pretty obvious one. The other would be fraudulent. Okay. Fraudulent endeavors. I'm sorry, I just realized I'm making poor camera guy's job a nightmare because I'm wandering all over the place. But what? Fraudulent has a broad spectrum though, right? Because fraudulent could be everything from I'm going to spend my my time trying to, you know, literally steal from Nathan fraudulently. But it doesn't have to be that harsh, if you will. I mean, fraudulent could be Did I actually do the work I was supposed to? Did I take credit for the work somebody else was doing at work? I think fraudulent's a good word. But I think there's a lot more to it than only thinking, am I running a Ponzi scheme? Right? I think the the opposite of deceptive work would probably have to be honest work. Right? Am I doing what I said I would do? Yeah. Yeah. So it's righteous work is what we're striving for. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so it's not necessarily going all the way to that extreme. Anything that is unrighteous because of that contrast, it's not going all the way to that extreme that we think of where I'm, you know, I'm not going all the way. I don't have to be Bernie Madoff to be on the wrong side of this equation. Yeah. I think the deciding factor 
part of it has to be intent, right? Because I can stand up here in a worship service, right? Lead a prayer, which we're authorized to do, we're commanded to do as part of worship. And if I do it with the wrong intention, it's sinful. If I stand up here and lead a prayer and my whole heart or intent during that prayer is, look how great I am and how wonderful this prayer is going to be and I can lead this prayer better than anybody here, that's sinful, right? So I think if we try to find the specific act, we could probably find things that would otherwise be okay, but if done with the wrong intent, would make them sinful. So there are probably things that would fall under the category of still being honest work, but if my intent is to still defraud the person I'm doing the work for, if there's something else there, I think, I think intent is absolutely part of it that comes into play. So our goal here is, once we get to the other side of the equation, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. So I think the opposite of that deceptive work would be what today we would refer to as honest work. Next, let's go to Proverbs 18. In verse 9, he who is slothful in his work is a bother to him. Oh, excuse me, is a bother. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Perhaps my second favorite word after sluggard is slothful. All right. Now, so here's a word we don't use a whole lot, but it, it means exactly what you would think. To sink, to relax, to sink down, to let drop, be disheartened. Um, the, I read this from the New King James. In the King James, it's also translated feeble, fail, or weakened. He who is slothful in his work. He who isn't faithful, who isn't diligent. who doesn't see that it gets done. I find it interesting that this isn't compared to it being... Uh, Wasteful or a shame. It says he's brother to he who is a destroyer. I don't know about you, but when I think of a destroyer, I think of, well, to destroy something, there has to be something to be destroyed, right? So the context here isn't merely that he doesn't reach some potential or something isn't achieved that could be. It seems to give more the connotation to me, James, of something that actually is as being destroyed. So it's not just a missed opportunity. It's a literal loss of something that is. All right, let's look at Proverbs 22 and verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Okay, so I chuckled when this said excels because I'm an engineer. If there's one thing engineers do, it's excel. Or at least push excel around. Or use excel a lot. And we are masters of the VLOOKUP. If you don't know what that means, consider yourself blessed. So clearly we're not talking about spreadsheets here. Excel, before it was a spreadsheet, 
It was talking about a skill or promptness. So what are we really talking about here? Those who are skilled or prompt in their labor are what? They're going to stand before kings? Well, guess what? That Hebrew word means exactly what you think it means, Peggy. <laughs> and will not stand before unknown men. So it's, it's the exact same idea. So, I mean, what's being said here? He's going to stand before kings? I think it's saying if you're good at your work and you're diligent about it, it's going to get noticed. And guess what? The example that's used is by kings. I could be wrong, but I tend to think of kings as being fairly busy people. Clearly, they're the leader. So what we're being told here is that if you have skill in your work, and you're prompt in your work, you'll be noticed by people who are in charge and are otherwise quite busy. And I guess the better part of that is you'll be noticed for good reasons. Because I've certainly seen cases where people lacking this were noticed by kings, but it wasn't to their benefit. He will not stand before unknown men. And I guess in that same example, we should point out that standing before the king, is that always a good thing? I mean, there's two cases you can end up before the king, right? <laughs> one can turn out well for you and one cannot. But a man who excels in his work can stand before the king and he has nothing to fear, right? All right, Proverbs 24 and verse 27. I really like this one. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. And afterwards, build your house. Prepare your outside work. Glenn, I don't know how it works at your house, but at our house there's kind of this joke that I'm responsible for everything outside and Lindsay takes care of the inside. Which is true right up until something inside involves plumbing or electrical or tools, (laughs) by and large. (laughs) But we're told here to prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterwards build your house. I'll admit, this is another one of those that I walked through, I got the interlinear out, and I looked at it, and I went, okay, does this really say what I think it means? Is there something being obscured here in the the translation? Um, I don't think there is. I think it pretty much means what you're reading there. So what's the point? Why would we be told to worry about our outside work and make it fit first. But what's really being said in this passage? Any thoughts? Again, this isn't the second sermon. I think there's exactly, that's part of it. I think part of it is from the standpoint of um, preparing the ground, right? Uh, When we built our house, first thing we had to do was move a whole bunch of dirt. It was kind of a low spot in the field where I wanted to put the house. So we had to move a bunch of dirt. So I think that's part of it. I think there's another piece of it as well that also involves working the ground. Peggy? Yep. 
Yep. We're talking about a very much agrarian society at this point, and you've got to have means of support to build the house, right? Yep. I think that man's on to something. Because that's what jumped into my mind. There's only certain times a year that are good to till the ground and get the seed in. There's other times a year that I got to get out there and I got to keep the weeds out. And then there's certain times a year that if I don't bring the crop in, I don't have a crop. And I think that's part of what's being spoken to here. I think this is really a proverb not as much about work as it is about priorities. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, like many Proverbs, I think there's, I mean, there's also the physical, and I think there's also a spiritual aspect to this as well. But I think you're right. I think it talks about both the house. What I wanted to consider was the standpoint that if I don't take care of the outside work, especially with this reference where it ties into the field, right? Make it fit for yourself in the field. If I don't take care of making sure that I'm raising the crops when I need to raise the crops, if I have food when winter comes, I can live in a tent and I'll make it through the winter. I can starve to death in a palace. Right? It's like the same thing about, you know, splitting firewood. I can only stack and split firewood If I wait until the middle of winter to do that, it's not going to dry out because at that point it's frozen. I'm not going to have anything to keep me warm, right? So really what I think we're talking about here is, I mean, I've heard it other ways. Put first things first. The house, I can sleep in the field. I can rig a shelter. I can come up with something. But a house is more comfortable, right? So it really comes down to I can survive in a tent or I can starve in a palace, so it's putting your priorities right. What was that, uh, the seven habits thing, right? It's like first, put first things first. Um, I've also heard it done as prioritize and execute, right? I got to figure out what's important and do them in the right season at the right time and then move forward. And I think that's what we're being taught here. Before you worry about the things that merely make life comfortable, worry about the things that you actually need. That's probably one that we should ponder on more given the fact that, well, compared to the history of humanity as a whole, Glenn, can you think of a time when people have been more comfortable? <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> I think you'd be lying to yourself if you think there was. And I agree with the people that say, oh, well, conservatives keep talking about how great things were in the past. No, I'm not saying that. Working on the farm was hard, right? There's lots of things you didn't have. I'm not talking about the physical aspects or labor of the past. I'm also talking about the fact that people understood this and had their priorities more in line in the past. Now we put the comforts before the work. All right. So those passages, I was literally looking at work, um, but work isn't the only Well, work isn't the only word that describes work, right? So let's look at a few others. And now we're going to, the the key here being that these are more, they use the word labor. So 
Back to the beginning of Proverbs 13, verse 11. Proverbs 11 and verse 13. Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. Again, this is another one of those that I went and looked at the interlinear and I didn't see anything, you know, real subtle or misleading hiding in the translations. The words here pretty much mean what we think they mean today. But what does it mean, wealth gotten by vanity? The, the literal Hebrew word there is the same thing that speaks to the idea of a vapor or breath. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything passes quickly. But we're talking here about wealth gotten by vanity is quickly diminished. When I was drinking coffee this morning and reviewing my notes here, I remembered a story that jumped out at me that I think perfectly describes this. Any of y'all know who Jackie Coogan is? No 60s TV fans in here, I can tell. Jackie Coogan? Uncle Fester. Most people don't know this about the Jackie Coogan. He's the guy who played Uncle Fester on the what, two or three seasons that the Adams Family was on in the 60s. Um, he was actually a child actor. He got his start, the Charlie Chaplin movie, The Tramp, that made Charlie Chaplin favorite, uh, famous. Guess who played the little kid in that movie? Jackie Coogan. Kid made millions of dollars in the 20s. All right? Was considered one of the richest movie stars there was at the time. All that wealth? Well, I guess you could make the argument he worked for it. Guess who made it disappear? His parents. The reason he was on the Adams family was because he was broke and needed to eat, even though he had been one of the richest movie stars. Those who had gathered that wealth by vanity soon spoiled it. It's actually a law in California now called Coogan's Law, where child actors just by law required that you put. I think it's 80 or 90% of any of their income before the age of something has to go like in a trust that they get when they turn a certain age um, because of that. So who spoiled that? Not the person who worked for it. Wealth that came by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. Notice it doesn't say shall be wealthy. It says, shall increase. Nowhere could I find in the Bible, Glenn, and this may come as a shock to a lot of people today, did I ever find anything that said you'll be wealthy or rich? You'll profit by your labor. You'll increase by your labor. But nowhere do we have a promise that we'll be the next Elon Musk by our labor. Our goal should be different. Our labor is for a different purpose. And the Bible has a lot to say about labor because the root word here for labor, I went and looked in the King James Version, it's only used 1,350 times in the Old Testament. So there's a lot there, which is why I had to figure out how to pare this down. All right, let's look at Proverbs 14. We're going to run out of time. Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. So sorry, Glenn, talking isn't worth much apparently says the guy standing up here talking um, 
In all labor there is profit. Again, I thought this was interesting. It's not in all labor there is riches. Not in all labor there is great wealth. It's that there's profit. And all profit means is I got out a little more than I put into it. Sometimes it's profits a lot, sometimes profits a little. The important thing is I got more back than I put into it. And we're told that in labor, I mean, that's the definition of profit. Might be a penny, right? Your profit margins might be a half a percent, James, or they might be 400%. You work for the federal government, I think anything over 12% is considered illegal. If you're a contractor. Unless it's commercial goods or service, not that I checked. So in our labor, there is profit. There's something that we're going to get out of it that is better or slightly more than what we put into it. But the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. Now, there's a word we use all the time. So I looked it up. The definition today, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is extreme poverty or destitution. And even in Strong's, it's the same idea. I think it's probably gotten a little stronger in time because we use it less, right? So it's gotten distilled down to be a little bit harsher. But it's the idea of need, poverty, or things needed. And the word pro- and the word labor here can actually mean not just physical work, but pain, hurt, toil, sorrow, hardship. A lot of those things Glenn was talking about this morning. Guess what? There's profit in those. We don't like them. My boys are tired of me hearing, hearing me say this, but again, because we live in a world where everything's all about comfort and how would I do things the easy way, humans uh, as a whole, at least in the United States especially, need to do more hard things. We get too much free dopamine from running social media feeds and seeing things that make us happy instead of the way we were designed, which was to get that dopamine hit when we're actually doing physical labor. And I guess if I had to boil 1423 down, it kind of comes out to talk is cheap. <laughs> I heard a quote one time, and I tried to find this one too, and I, don't, I, I never could find the source, but I, it was uh, people often look at where someone succeeded with a great idea, and they say, I thought of that first. Yeah, but the difference is you only thought of it. They actually went and did something. That ever happened to you, James? Somebody come up and say, I thought I had an idea to write that book. Yeah, but they actually wrote it. (laughs) 21 verse 25. The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. Got to use slothful again, so that made me happy. What's the desire of the slothful? To not do anything. Or to do it as easily and as partially as possible. And notice that it says here, for his hands refuse to labor. Not his hands couldn't labor, not his hands were unfit for labor, not his hands were by some other means restrained from labor, his hands refused to labor. 
Again, intent. 23 and verse 24. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. This is the last one I pulled out. Proverbs 23 and 4. Labor not to be rich. What's the point of our labor? It's not to be rich. And we're even told that that wisdom didn't come from God. Cease from thine own wisdom. The idea of working for the purpose of getting rich is not a biblical concept. That's not why we were designed to labor. It's not the goal. That's human thinking. So clearly, if we're going to look at the Old Testament, we should look at the New Testament, right? And there again, there's lots of places we could go. um, And there's lots of these that we've seen before. And so I decided to pick only two passages that I want to take a little time and go through them in detail rather than going over a bunch at 10,000 feet. And they're both, believe it or not, from Thessalonians. I got one from 1 Thessalonians and one from 2 Thessalonians. And the first one is in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, And let's just start in verse 9. We'll read through 12, and then I want to go back and pick apart verse 11. So starting in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. They were instructed that their aspirations, verse 11, should be to lead a quiet life. That's the goal. Labor not to be rich. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Now we could probably spend an entire class talking about what a quiet life should look like. I mean, let's be honest, this topic we could spend an entire quarter on. What does a quiet life look like? Well, I think to lead a quiet life, you probably have to be a quiet person. <laughs> I don't know why, but when I, when I was looking at this passage, it kept reminding me, have you ever heard the old, I, don't, I guess it would be an adage, James, that um, strength is quiet, insecurities are loud. So to lead a quiet life, you have to be, you have to know, especially from a biblical point of view, you have to know the Bible well enough that when someone's talking nonsense about Christianity, you have enough strength in your own conviction and enough knowledge that you don't have to go railing against every false accusation that gets made. You have enough strength that you can deal with it quietly, and calmly. So they start by saying they need to aspire to lead a quiet life. I find it interesting that it says aspire to lead a quiet life, not that you'll always be able to. Sometimes other people make that decision for you. But your goal should be to lead a quiet life. Next, to mind your own business. 
Clearly, they didn't have Facebook when this was written. It means exactly what you think. Business is your work, your occupation, and it's your own. You ever worked with somebody that was way too busy worrying about everybody else's business? So I get to mentor a team of, they're not in here, right? Good. I get to mentor a team of high school robotic students. And they're mostly, it's mostly boys, not entirely, but it's mostly guys. And it always amazes me because we divide up different people are working on different subsystems. We got to get stuff done and it never fails. Somebody is really way too worried about the way a problem's getting solved over here. Never mind the fact I've been told for three weeks that they'd be done by the end of that meeting about the stuff going on that they're responsible for, but they're really worried about what's happening over here. Right? Aspire to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. And then this next one I find really fascinating. And to work with your own hands. Now, the word hands here is very much the meaning of done by someone's hand. Right? And it doesn't have to be yours. Right? It could be someone else's. Right? It could be something done by James' hand or something done by Glenn's hand. Something done by someone else's hand. Except for the fact that it's preceded very clearly indicating your hands. This is being done by your own hands. So what are they being told here? Thessalonians, they're being, the Thessalonians are being told to be about their own business and to work with their own hands. Glenn, why do you woodwork? Why do you like working with wood? Not to put you on the spot, but on the spot. Why do you like working with wood? Yeah, because it's gratifying to finish something. And what happens when you're done? You step back from it and you can see it. Cindy brags. Fair enough. But you build something and there it is and you can see it. And there's a satisfaction in that when you work with your own hands. I find it interesting that over the last 20, 30 years we've seen this explosion in mental health issues. At the same time, we've had this explosion in the technology information economy because unlike working with wood, I can go spend all day in my supposedly great engineering field and get up at the end of the day and walk away from my computer and I can't tell I've done anything. There's not a lot of satisfaction in that. In fact, I had a job probably, I hate to say it, going on 15 years ago now, that was so stressful, I'd come home and I called it bush hog therapy, Glenn. I would get on the bush hog and I'd just ride in circles for about two hours. Why? Because when you got off, look how good the field looks. Mm -hmm. Making sure. Glenn was saying when he was a teenager, he worked for a carpenter, and they would call it making a showing. At the end of the day, you could look back, you could see you had done something, and they had made a showing. Right? It's that same idea. There's a satisfaction in that. Um, And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Look what I've done. I have labored. I received the reward for that labor. And here it is. Glenn makes stuff so he can give it to Cindy so she can brag about it. Some people make stuff so they can sell it. Right? For Glenn, Cindy bragging about it's worth more than money. I'm trying to make you look good, man. All right. Oh, <laughs> he, he, gotcha. He gives it to someone else, just wants you to brag about it before God. Okay. All right. 
Glenn, hint, hint. I'm just saying. Um, But we find here that they're commanded, and why? Let's not forget the why are they commanded to do these things. That they may walk properly towards those who are outside. What does outside mean? They don't mean standing outside your house. He's writing this to Christians. He's saying, do these things so you can walk properly before other people. So they see you, that you're not a busybody. You're not worrying about other people's business. You're not trying to lead, well, a loud and boisterous, raucous life. Let's look at the second one, and we're going to run out of time. We've got about five minutes. Um, and we're going to skip part of this. I wanted to look at all of Thessalonians chapter 3 so we could put it in context, but for time, we'll skip down to verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he receives from us. This is something we've heard and we know. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they should work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." Has anybody ever heard somebody use the phrase, anyone who will not work, neither shall he eat, and cast that as a disparaging statement for anyone who is currently unemployed or homeless? I have, and I've heard it in the church, and I think that's a misapplication of this verse. Because this verse is talking about the people sitting next to you in the pew. This verse is talking about a problem among a group of Christians that these people were choosing not to work, that they were busybodies, a number of things that we've already talked about. I'm not saying there aren't other issues or places where you have to deal with those other problems, but specifically here, I think that misses the point. I think that lets us off the hook of having to go deal with those people and the fact that what those people need first is to know Christ and to know the Bible, and then we can work on the other issues. We are commanded, actually that's not true, we're not commanded. We were designed to work. We have to work. It was given to us for our benefit, physically and spiritually. So we need to make sure that we look at work, or lack of work of others, especially those outside of the body, from a biblical point of view. And Second Thessalonians 3.10 is not a license to write people off as lazy or unworthy of the gospel. Last, I think it's important that we discuss keeping work in its perspective. You can get to a point with that 
what's the phrase, that uh, Judeo-Christian work ethic, where all of a sudden work becomes the only thing that's important. Work is to our profit. It's for our benefit. There is a point where it's no longer a benefit. If it's at the neglect of our families, then we're now giving up something more than what it was. Most likely at that point, we're chasing riches, not profit. And I want to close with this, and I want to read this even though the last bell's rung. If you're going to talk about putting things in perspective and that there's a time for everything, you have to go to Ecclesiastes 3. And we all know this passage. To everything there is a season, a time unto every purpose under heaven, all the way down through 8. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. But I think it's important, and I want to close by continuing and not stopping in verse 8. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with... I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor It is the gift of God. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.